Good morning, friends. Today we're going to read from uh, John 9, 1 through 12. It's one of my favorites. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that, this, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man, who, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. Thank you, Josh. We pray together. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for the, the joy it is to gather, to be together. Thank you that um, you promised us that when we do gather together like this, and turn our attention to you, Lord Jesus, you would be with us. I pray that you would help us this morning to be aware of your presence that you are with us, you're helping us um, in such a way that our gathering here this morning would be more than just a religious routine, but an actual encounter with you, our living King, our Savior. Help us, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, quick shout out to Josh. Thank you for reading our scripture this morning. And uh, thanks for organizing an epic men's overnighter this weekend. <clears throat> yeah, now I'm, based on your facial expressions, some of you are like, oh, dang it, that was this weekend? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, it was, you missed it. Feel, feel terrible, just, just sit in it, embrace it, and remember that feeling when we, when we announce it next time. <laughs> I'm just playing. Um, but it was really good, and I think, I think the consensus is we're all excited to do it again, and probably not even like next year, but more like maybe later this summer. Yeah, we'll see what happens. Um, but it was really, really good, and thank you, Josh, for uh, actually like getting us organized and making it a really cool time together. Um, while we were at the men's retreat, I think Dave Rains, you asked me this question. Someone asked me this question there as you walk out of the room. Um, <laughs> We were sitting around the fire and someone, we started talking about, um, maybe we were missing all of like the wonderful women in our lives, but someone asked me, 
um, Simon, how did you meet your wife? Uh, what was it like? How did you kind of know that this was the woman that you wanted to pursue and to hopefully marry? I, I ended up marrying her. Um, and uh, I said, well, you know, initially, I'll, I'll be totally honest, we met at church. We were both living in, in the UK, in London. Uh, and she was volunteering some of her time at the, the office for the church there. And I remember thinking like, well, that's, that's a good start. Um, here's this girl, really attractive, like volunteering the church office. So I thought, let's, let's, yeah, let's test the waters a little bit. And so we began a bit of a friendship that quickly escalated um, into a romance. And yeah, and now we've been married for almost 15 years. It's been amazing. Yeah. Early days, early days. But then I said, here was the thing though that like made me really interested where I decided like, I think I might like wanna marry this girl if, if she's into it. And it was the way she related to Jesus. It was her relationship with the Lord that really, really attracted me to her. Like, and I'd asked her questions because I wanted to know like, do you, do you have like a real relationship with Jesus? Um, and she obviously did. I mean, some of the stuff she told me was like actually hilarious, the way she was relating to Jesus. I'm like, this is so inspiring. Like, I wanna know Jesus this way. She told me this one story based on this scripture. This, this will tell you something about my wife, like on many, many levels. She told me one time, she had a friend, so she's South African, so this was back in South Africa. She was much younger, but she had a friend who was blind. And so my wife will have these moments of like boldness. She's a very, very bold, strong woman. Way, way courageous. And so she had this moment of boldness. She wanted to pray for her friend who was blind to receive her sight. And I'm like, well, that's cool. And she said, so what she did was she actually got a bit of dirt up off the ground, spit in her hand, made mud, and wiped it on her friend's face. And then told her to go to the restroom and wash it off. Um, now, I honestly, you hear that story, you're like, that's, that's, that's not cool. Like, did her friend even know what she was doing? Did she ask permission? She asked for permission. The whole thing was, it was fine. It was, it was consensual. Um, of course, then you're wondering, like, did it work? It didn't work. <laughs> It didn't work that time. But that's, that's rather bold, is it not? I mean, I've prayed for a lot of people, sick people, um, people in, in wheelchairs. I don't know if I've ever prayed for a blind person to receive their sight. Super bold. The other thing I love about my wife is that she's not stopped. I think some of us will like, we'll have a moment of boldness and if it doesn't work out exactly the way we, we, we thought or had hoped, then we're like, oh, I'm never doing that again. But she just simply hasn't stopped. Um, and I absolutely love that about my wife. And I think that's hilarious. <clears throat> so bold. Rabbi, who sinned? Was it this man who was born blind or his parents such that he was, in fact, born blind? What a phenomenal question. This is the question that Jesus' disciples are asking their teacher, Rabbi, as they're leaving the temple. A bit of context, this is the beginning of chapter nine, the end of chapter eight was the conclusion of a long, rather contentious 
uh, interaction, an argument that Jesus was having with a group of people who were essentially his opponents. They were confronting Jesus. They thought he was a charlatan. They didn't believe that he was who he claimed to be, even though he had demonstrated his, his divinity, if I can put it that way, for now, in all sorts of ways, the controversy was just escalating and escalating to the point where at the end of chapter eight, Jesus' opponents actually pick up rocks to stone him to death, public execution for uttering blasphemy before them. And chapter eight ends by simply saying, and Jesus left the temple. And Jesus left the temple and immediately they see a man, uh, somehow it was known that he was born blind and he goes right to work. It's like he's not even thrown off. He's not like, okay, bring it together. We gotta make a plan so that we can confront my opponents, so that we can, we can deal with our enemies. Nope, he leaves the temple and gets right to healing someone who's, um, who's suffering. He was a beggar, born blind. Um, obviously, in our society today, uh, that's not, well, I don't know, I've never been blind, but I could imagine that that would be a very difficult thing. In the first century, that could have meant you will live a life of abject poverty, you will be a beggar, um, you will have a radically low quality of life because you were born this way. And he gets right to work meeting this man's a very real felt need. But who sinned? Was it this man or his parents that he was born blind? You ever wonder to yourself, who is to blame for this very difficult situation that is my life? What did I do to deserve this? Who can I point the finger at so that we can solve this problem? Because I don't like my situation. Um, I didn't ask for this predicament. I certainly don't feel like I deserve it. So who sinned? This man or his parents? I think it's rather silly that they would ask, was it this man who sinned that caused him to be born blind? It's almost as if, like, did he, did he like, think about thought in the womb? Like, how exactly would one sin before they're born in order to be born blind? That's rather silly, but it makes me think that perhaps there's more to the question. There's more to the moment than what we might see just uh, initially on paper. Uh, the writer here is always John, who recorded these events and all of these words as he's reflecting on his own experience of walking with Jesus. He's trying to highlight some really significant uh, things about who Jesus is, the way he interacts with broken people. And, and, and it, there's a bit of a, a, there's something about these moments that says something about us as people. Like these are real human uh, things that are happening. And oftentimes as we're reading through the text, it's like, oh yeah, that's me. Like I've, I've asked that question a million times. Who is to blame for this uh, injustice or this difficult circumstance? I didn't ask to be born this way. Who do I blame? Who's to blame? 
We can blame the people around us. Um, obviously, that's a rather obvious, simple thing to do. We can blame God. It's also another classic thing. Uh, we, we can blame ourselves as well. Um, but we, we quite naturally ask the question and demand, demand to know who is to blame. Um, as always, we, ha- we have a very clear precedent for this all the way at the, the beginning of the story. Genesis chapter three. Back in the garden where we're first introduced to some of like the, the big, big concepts, the, the, the themes that run throughout the narrative in the entire Bible. Genesis three. Something's gone wrong. Adam and Eve, the original humans, this couple that God has created and put in this garden to enjoy each other and him, their creator, uh, they're tempted to not trust their creator. So they rebel. They decide to um, listen to another voice that wants to undermine um, their trust in God. It all goes terribly wrong. Insecurity rushes into the moment and all of a sudden they realize that they're, they're exposed, they're vulnerable, and they're afraid. So they cover up, they hide. And their creator, our father, he goes looking for them. Not to point his finger at them, not to condemn them, but to actually draw them out. And he asks them a few questions. He's like inviting them into a place of vulnerable confession. He says, where are you? Who told you? What did you do? He actually asks four questions all in a little moment and inviting them to, to come to him that he might help them, restore them, cover them. But instead of uh, confessing, they actually end up shifting the blame. It starts with the man blaming the woman, the woman blames the serpent, and actually the man kind of blames like the woman and God simultaneously, classic move. Um, and this is what we do. This is what we do in our fear, in our anxiety. We begin to ask the question, who is to blame? But this is what I love about Jesus. Jesus doesn't seem terribly interested in the questions that we often ask ourselves. Who is to blame? Jesus says, well, it wasn't that this man sinned or his parents. Obviously everyone sins. But it's not that they sinned, but it's that the work of God might be displayed in him or through his life, through his brokenness. And whereas we uh, tend to expend massive amounts of energy trying to figure out who is to blame, God, those people, or myself, I think that's where I usually land. I love to condemn myself. Makes me feel like a bit of a martyr. Must get like a bit of a righteous feeling out of it. God doesn't seem terribly interested in pointing the finger. Instead, Jesus says, no, no, that's, that's not it. Um, maybe there's a better question. 
Maybe, there's a, maybe God is focused on something else, and that's not who is to condemn, who is to blame, who is to curse, who is to uh, heap shame on, but that is, what does God want to do in this broken situation? Jesus is clearly more interested in applying balm than he is assigning blame. He makes the mud with the spit and the dirt, and he applies the balm to the man's eyes, and he says, now go wash and the man is healed. Whereas his disciples, like us humans, want to expend energy and oftentimes obsess over figuring out who's really to blame. Now we all know it's the liberals, right? (laughs) No, I'm kidding, it's obviously the conservatives. I kid, I kid. Now you might object. You might object. Are you implying that actually sin doesn't matter? Are you implying that, well, it doesn't really matter because sin's not the thing. It's, a, it's something else. Are you saying that sin doesn't cause harm? Are you implying that, well, God, God doesn't want us to focus on sin because that, that's, that's really not a big deal. Well, God, God is just, he's just the, the eternal optimist and wants us just to focus on like positive, happy things. Is that what you're saying? No. No, not at all, actually. Um, that would be a false extreme, a false dichotomy. In fact, if we just back up a little bit, uh, John chapter five. By the way, this is, this is an... In the Gospel of John, this is Jesus' third healing. It's the sixth out of a total of seven miraculous signs that Jesus uh, performs. The whole book written by John is actually sort of um, outlined around these seven miraculous signs. This is sign number six. The last one's coming up. That's a big one. But this is the third of... um, three physical healings. In John chapter five, which would have been the second one, he heals a man next to a pool called Bethesda. I always screw it up. Bethesda. Who hadn't been able to walk for 38 years. And Jesus is walking along. Um, It's the Sabbath day, as always. And Jesus has this amazing interaction with this man. Remember, Ben, you, you preached a message um, on this particular portion of text. It was fantastic. But he says to the man, take up your mat and walk. And the man trusts Jesus and thus obeys Jesus. And he gets up, and he takes his mat, and he walks off. Um, later on, Jesus, he, it's, he sees the man, and he says, now, great, you're, you're healed, wonderful. Now, stop sinning so that something worse doesn't happen. Okay, So Jesus is very much aware of the fact that actually sin hurts people. When we sin, we hurt ourselves. We hurt the people around us, our friends, our spouses, our children, nephews and nieces, our society. When I sin, I'm actually affecting the world I live in. In fact, I would say that's inherent to sin. Sin, by definition, is always not personal. 
biblically speaking. It's not just like this secret bad thought I had. Sin always affects relationship. It severs right relationship. When we sin, the outworking or the symptom is always severed relationship between us and God and us and each other. So there's really no such thing as like personal sin. It's always going to affect the world around us. That's a much more biblical understanding of this idea of sin. So sin has consequences. Jesus is aware of this. But in this moment, Jesus isn't focused on who is to blame. He says, what I want you to understand is that sometimes blame is complicated. And sometimes you can use all of your energy pointing the finger at someone else and fail to miss what God is doing through that situation to display his faithfulness, his power, his desire to do something good out of a really bad, broken, hard, painful, sin-riddled situation. And that's helpful. That's helpful. We're told to um, figure out who's to blame so that we can take them down, so that we can make them our enemies. The problem with that is, um, if we keep reading, what we will eventually discover, if we've not really already figured it out, is that if you want to talk about blame, everyone is culpable. Um, The book of Romans. It's an amazing, amazing mammoth of a book in the New Testament. It's actually a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to uh, a church in Rome. And he says in Romans chapter three that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. So the very idea of blaming others, um, it's kind of a moot point because eventually we're gonna end up just condemning ourselves. If we point the finger long enough, we're gonna find ourselves pointing in the mirror. And so Jesus shifts our attention. Instead of assigning blame, he teaches us to apply balm. That we would be the hands of Jesus going out to a broken world, not to point the finger, but to lay hands and pray for people who are hurting. Maybe even people who are blind. Does sin matter? Absolutely. You know, I've been a part of a group that we started as a church um, about four years ago, I think. I've kind of lost lost track, called 423. It's uh, based on Proverbs chapter 4, verses 23. And uh, it's a gender specific group. So there's a group for men, there's a group for women. And the basic idea of the group is for people who are really struggling with different forms of sexual addiction, whether like masturbation or pornography or, um, I mean, it could be a whole myriad of things, but it's for people who are like, look at, I don't, I don't wanna, I don't wanna be bound up in this stuff. Um, I enjoyed it for a while, but now it's just killing me. It's wrecking my marriage. It's, it's, it's just not good for me or for my relationships. And I need help, I need help. So it's, it's a group for, for that, for those people. 
And I've been a part of it myself. I actually helped get it off the ground because I've always struggled with sexual sin. Like from back, I mean, it started when I was like, what, 14 or something? And um, I don't know, maybe, maybe this is the thorn in my side. The thing that it's like, man, I wish, I wish it would just magically go away forever. I wish I would never be tempted to look at something pornographic online again. <laughs> It'd be amazing if I just wasn't even like tempted. But in fact, it's a big part of my life. It's something that I have to fight. And some time ago, I thought, man, I don't want to be another pastoral statistic. Some pastor who's been found out watching porn, cheating on his wife, whatever it might be. So let's form a group so I can lock arms with some men. Because I want to be ultra intentional to walk in the light. And to know that I have a place and a group of men that I can meet with every Sunday evening that I can confess my sins to. And find no fingers being pointed at me. And they're not going to let me point the finger at myself either. And we're going to go on this journey together and ask Jesus to help us to like grow in freedom, to overcome sin. We've been doing that for about four years now. It's awesome. I recommend checking it out. That appeals to you. But you know one of the things I think we've all discovered over the past like four years as we meet together every Sunday evening, we, we confess, we talk about what's going on in our weeks, where we're failing, where we're, where we're winning, we realize that it's not about the sin. We don't come just to like feel bad about our sin and then we confess and we kind of feel embarrassed about it and in a way you almost feel like you're, you're doing penance. It's like, oh, I feel really bad, but I, I think Jesus is happy that I feel bad and so Maybe, maybe I'm better now, and, and it's, that, it doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't work, it just perpetuates this cycle like forever. What we've realized, that actually what we're doing primarily is coming together to focus on what Jesus is wanting to do that's way, way better than the sin in our lives. And we're reminding each other, oh, this is who I am in Jesus. I meant to like uh, live like a, like a royal priest, like a son of the king, like I'm, like I'm royalty, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a man of integrity. I don't lie, I don't hide, I don't cover up, I don't live in shame. I know who I am in Jesus. So Josh, I'm gonna need you to remind me tonight, who am I again? And what is God's incredible vision for my life? Please apply the bomb to me once again. Because that's the journey I'm on. That's the fight. That's the good fight that Jesus has called me to. And he's reminding us here, this isn't about condemnation. This isn't about who, how, who can I point the finger at and assign blame to. This is about God meeting broken people and displaying his awesome faithfulness, his power through our lives. That's where everyone says amen really loud. Amen. Let's get a little Pentecostal, shall we? Hmm. So there's another part to this story. John chapter, John chapter five was the healing at Bethesda. John chapter four was the first John's first recorded miracle that Jesus performed. 
a healing miracle. I think it was actually the second miracle. Um, but the first healing. He met a man whose son, it was an official, and his son was dying. And Jesus simply said the word, go, your son will live. And the man trusted Jesus and thus obeyed, and the boy was healed. Just said the word. I, I, I wonder if it, how many people even knew that a miracle had happened. Obviously the father and some of his servants, the kid, clearly. But it wasn't this big public display. This one's different. This one's different. This is very public. Like a whole lot of people are involved. He, he wipes spit mud on the guy's face, which would have just been something in of itself, and then tells him, now go to the pool of Siloam, which means scent, and wash. And so everyone's watch, watching, and, and even just the little bit that we read, we're told that the neighbors like, immediately began to like, talk, like, was this the guy? I think it's the guy. No, 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 it just looks like the guy. No one's ever been healed of blindness. And in fact, this is something else. Do you know that Jesus is the only person in the Bible that ever heals someone from blindness? The Bible's full of like all sorts of miracles. You go back to the Old Testament, you got Moses, Elijah, Elisha. People get raised from the dead. Demons are confronted. There's even like mass feedings, multiplication of food. Like virtually every miracle that Jesus does, it's almost like he's sort of, um, uh, what's the word? Like recapitulating the story of the Old Testament. And he's saying, look, I'm the new and better Moses. I'm the new and better Elijah. I'm the new and better. And then he heals this man who's born blind. This has never, ever been done before. Nowhere in the Old Testament is anyone ever healed of blindness. And it's as if Jesus is saying, something brand new is here. Okay, I'm I'm shattering all expectations. I'm elevating stereotypes. This is something you've never witnessed before. This is Jesus. This is not just another teacher, not even a mere prophet. This is the savior who's come into the world. This is Jesus. Go to the pool of Siloam. Why the public display? How many of you like being the center of attention in a really vulnerable moment? It's always fun. You know, your journey, my journey of healing is no more personal than your sin itself. When we are walking with Jesus, looking for freedom, looking uh, for some way to deal with the weight of our shame. Like forgiveness of sin is a big deal. It's not just this weird religious phenomenon. It's something that every human in the world has to deal with. Like what do I do with the weight of shame? What do I do with that? Who can forgive me? Who can tell me I'm clean? 
Who can make me new? Who can give me a new heart? Who can give me a chance to start over? Jesus offers this. And not just in sentimental fashion. He actually does something supernatural to provide forgiveness to sinners, broken people like us. And your journey to experiencing that, that healing, is no more personal than your sin itself. It's communal. It's relational. We don't heal alone. Not if we're walking with Jesus. Maybe there's other ways. I can recommend a great crystal shop. Forgive me if that offends you to the core. But there are other ways to seek out healing. But when we walk with Jesus, it always comes back to relationships. It always is in community. It's where we're uh, virtually forced to become vulnerable. It becomes more and more difficult to cover up and to hide when we're in relationship. Your journey to healing is no more personal than your sin itself. When you get healed, let me put it the other way around, when you begin to experience healing, the people around you get impacted as well. It's never just about you. And that's really good news. Because we all have people that we love. And when I'm getting healthy, when I'm getting better, when I'm confessing my sin and walking in the light and learning how to be a better husband and father and friend and son and etc., the people around me are more blessed for it. Healing begins to work its way out through the relationships that I'm in. I'm meant to share my healing with others. It's a communal journey. Um, and this is really, really difficult. For a myriad of reasons, not least of them being the fact that we live in a hyper-individualistic world. And it gets so old, just bashing on like the Western world, but, but we need to talk about it. This is our world, the Western world, hyper-individualistic. I don't think we even realize how much so. It's the air we breathe. Even within our relationships, even in relationship, we're radically individualistic. We compartmentalize everything to where this is just my personal world, this is my inner reality, I define myself, maybe Google helps me, but everything comes back to just me personally. And we don't get healed that way. We don't get healed that way. Or if we do, it becomes a private matter. And the people that I love don't get to share in that healing. The way Jesus wants to share his healing. You know, the pool of Siloam, uh, this is an easy Google, now that I've just bashed Google. uh, It was only like 70 yards from the temple. So at the very, very most, when Jesus, quote unquote, sent this man to go wash in the pool of Siloam, he would have walked less distance than an American football field. He didn't really go that far. He was quote unquote sent, but he just walked a few yards across the courtyard. 
I, there's something there. And you know, forgive me if I'm taking theological liberties, but I think there's something there. I want to say that staying is the new go. When we talk about being like healed and sent, we usually tend to think of like, now nah, I'm going to like leave town, or I'm going to go to the other side of the world, which I've done plenty of, and that's all good if Jesus is in fact leading you to do that, but how radical would it be? Call me a revolutionary, but how radical would it be when we begin to experience healing in our personal lives? And Jesus says, now go, share the world. We took that to mean stay right where you are. That you might share your healing with the people around you. Staying is the new scent. Because in our hyper-individual world, we naturally think, oh, this is just about me, so I'm going to go and do my thing. I'm going to enjoy my healing. Failing to realize, like, no... You're meant to be like a conduit of healing. But if we're constantly floating around, constantly bouncing from one thing to the next, always looking for the next thing, the next experience, the next job, the next relationship, the next marriage, the next church community, of course it's going to be about me. But what if we had a vision? Now, now I'm, I'm appealing to you as, as your pastor, if you call me your pastor. As a church family, what if we began to dream along those lines? What if we started to get a radical vision of communal healing? That I don't heal alone. And when God begins to do something in my life, maybe it's physical healing, maybe it's something that actually is very private, and I'm not gonna announce it from the stage. And yet, what if we began to get a vision of healing such that whatever Jesus is doing in my life, internal or otherwise, is meant to be shared with the people in my church, the people that I, you know, I chat with over coffee on a Sunday morning? What if we're meant to go like way, way deeper in our relationships? What if we're meant to like come here? Oh, now I'm getting, oh my gosh, I don't know if I can say it. It's too radical. It's too radical. What if we came here every single Sunday? No, 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 no. I, I, I've heard of people doing this before. It feels radical. It feels so radical. What if we came here every week? And then, so just, you just crunch the numbers. What will happen is the odds of someone um, ticking you off or offending you will actually begin to go up exponentially. Okay, because you're spending more time together, things are all of a sudden getting a bit more personal. Now you're in that, what did Taylor call it? Ecclesia, why do we, why do we call them that? Why do we use the Greek word? Because it's cool. And now you're in a small group. Now it's getting real personal. Now, Sundays and midweek. That's insane. And so now you're spending time together. The relationships are getting real. You're starting to kind of get on each other's nerves. Things are getting really personal. All of a sudden, like we're talking about politics. Like that's risky. Like all of the things that risk to divide real relationships start to happen. And 
we stay. We stay. And we figure out how to experience the power of the gospel at work in human lives to transform a church community, to transform a city, to transform a state, a region, a nation, a world. This is the radical vision of Jesus. And you know, I'm being silly to, to insinuate that there's anything revolutionary about it unless you consider Jesus to be some kind of revolutionary. Which he is. So who wants in? Pray about it. Can we stand together, please? You know the whole bit about people, you know, getting on each other's nerves. And sometimes it's not even that. It can be like for the most uh, just um, insignificant reason. We just go this place, go that place. You know, we kind of wander around because we get bored and, and, and we can do that. Culturally, at least to some degree, I would argue, it's become acceptable just to kind of float here, float there. And we don't think of it necessarily, speaking just for myself, we don't think of it as like, well, I don't care about relationships. I do my own thing. Like, that's, that's messed up. But on a much more subtle way, we do tend to just kind of float around, not really having like, like a, a radical revelation of like, oh, this is what community could be like. So when we do start to like get that, so now I'm gonna, I'm gonna be in this thing. I'm gonna begin to open myself up and invite others in to like what, what feels incredibly personal. I wanna I want I want share with others so that my healing can be the healing of the people next to me. So when we start doing that, it's exactly what happened in the story. You have to read the rest of it. We only read 12 verses. But the family gets involved the officials get involved, there's witnesses, the, the man who gets healed, he's, he's like right in the middle of it all, and like the controversy, once again, is just like off the charts. Like it gets complicated really, really fast because it was a communal affair. It wasn't just this little private moment between Jesus and this, this man. It was meant to be put on display so that the works of God might be put on display. Oh, it gets complicated. It gets hard, but that's okay. God's grace, it's more than enough. He helps us. And when we stay, when we work out the difficult things, when we bear with one another with patience and humility, something else gets displayed in a world riddled with division, which includes the church. All of a sudden, the grace of God is displayed because there's something going on that's bigger, that's more significant, that's more powerful than our, uh, our offense, the things that rub me the wrong way. And together, we get to display something of God's incredible power to the world.
world around us. Father, would you help us? I pray that you would take this, this vision that you have put on my heart and I know others. And I pray that you would, you would drive it home that this wouldn't be just my idea or a little passionate moment on a Sunday morning, but I pray that you would do something so deep in our hearts and in our church community that, that it, it, would, um, it would, without a doubt, be your doing. This isn't something we can manufacture or just force people to, to do. Lord, it has to come from your heart, and I'm, Lord, I'm asking you to help us. Would you help us? Would you help us to get a vision um, of being a part of a community that actually reflects um, your unity? And would you help us to, to learn how to bless each other when it feels like we're being cursed? To build up our brothers and sisters when we actually feel rather offended by them. Would you help us to love each other the way you have loved us? Not by pointing our finger at each other, but by laying our lives down for each other. That the world might know that we are your disciples. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Let's worship.